What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! I see dead people. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it! My life has value! Filmmaking Conversations with Damien Swayde is part of the critical conversations currently taking place across the film community. The podcast reaches out to the next generation of filmmakers who continue to look for inspiration and guidance. Remember to hit the subscribe button and leave a comment in the comments section. Share the podcast with friends and family and have a great day. And now over to the host of the show, Damien Swaby. Hi, Rosella. How are you today? Good. How are you, Damien? I'm absolutely fantastic. I was lucky enough to to watch a brilliant documentary today that I'm, I think you may have heard of. It's about a black ice ho- black ice hockey player. Do you, do you know the one I might be talking about? Yes, that would be the film Willie, which um, is the story of Willie O'Ree, who um, is a Canadian um, hockey player from Fredericton, New Brunswick. Fredericton is a small city. It is a, considered a city, but it's it really feels like a little town. And... Um, and it's his journey to be recognized by the National Hockey League's uh, Hall of Fame. So um, that's sort of the present day narrative arc, but it also recounts his whole history with hockey and, you know, his professional career, which is really fascinating. It was indeed. It was indeed. And I can't wait to get into detail with you to discuss that documentary. But before we do that, Please do tell us, how did you get your start in the industry and what made you want to become an editor? Well, okay. Um, I, after high school, uh, I, I was always smitten with film. Like I was always a huge fan of going to the movies. It was always like a magical experience. I still very vividly remember my very first time going to a movie and just how enthralled I was with the experience. And so there was always like an allure for me. And um, I think it was, um, I think there were a couple of films that just totally lit uh, a fire inside me. And I was like, wow, I, you know, it made me aware of the technique of filmmaking. And the one of them that comes to mind is Blue Velvet. David Lynch is Blue Velvet. And I was probably, you know, too young to see that film at the time. But uh, it was just like it it was the first movie I saw that made me really think about filmmaking and not just like, oh, I'm sitting in the movies having popcorn and, you know, being entertained. So um, I after high school and I was educated in Quebec, Canada, which is uh, one of the provinces. And the educational system there is a little bit different. So we finish high school in 11th grade at the age of 17. And then we have two years of a sort of pre-university college. Um, And at that time, I took, I was in fine arts, and I was painting and drawing and doing stuff like that. But I took this film class. And, um, you know, just like, I was like, oh, I love films. I'm going to take this class. And I 
uh, shot like a little Super 8 film. And then I (laughs) brought home the little editing kit to edit it at home. And it was like a tiny moviola, like an old fashioned sort of, you know, with a splicer and tape. Um, And I got completely lost in the editing process. And literally like 14 hours went by and I didn't feel it. And I was just like struck by Ah. that. Yeah. And so um, I decided uh, eventually to go to uh, like to study communication studies at university, but with a specialization in film. And the reason I had chosen communications and media is because I wanted the theoretical side of my uh, university education to not just be about like film histories and the film masters. And, you know, I wanted to learn, you know, communications offered courses like you know, gender studies in the media or race and ethnicity in the media or pop culture. And those are the things that theoretically I was more interested in and wanted to just be aware because we had courses too, like semiotics um, in communications and just wanted to be like very hyper aware of the messages and the symbols I was putting um, in my work. So I did that. And I knew on the first day that I wanted to be an editor, just simply based off that little Super 8 film I made, (laughs) which is crazy. But, um, you know, on the first day of school, people were like, I want to direct. And I was like, I want to edit. (laughs) That's amazing on the first day, because so many people I've spoke to said it takes time. And some people at film school, for example, say at the end of the first year, 90% of the class doesn't want to be a director. They choose um, individual paths such as editor, cinematographer, screenwriting. How did you know on the first day? I mean, what really kicked in to make you that convinced you didn't want to be the director? Mm, I think it was just like, you know, consuming a lot of films and looking at the credits. And, you know, Thelma Schoonmaker, uh, Martin Scorsese's editor, just... You know, I think I every year my girlfriends and I would get together and watch the Oscars like it was our Super Bowl. And um, I watched her win an Oscar and I was just like always enthralled by her work. And so I don't know, I guess also I think that technically I come from a long line of seamstresses. And um, and so I, I had originally chosen um, textile art and um, as my vocation and even worked as a textile artist for about 18 months when I was like, nope, got to quit everything and go back to school. Like, this is not for me. But I think that there's a certain um, overlap between uh, that sort of discipline, you know, doing detailed, repetitive work and editing. And my brain is wired to do that sort of thing. And also to tell stories. Like, I just love the storytelling aspect. So um, so editing just seemed like a really good fit. And I just really loved it. You know, it was really just about, mostly about the love of the craft. And was it editing that took you to New York? Because you're originally from Montreal, am I right? Yes, I am originally from Montreal. And so um, back in 2002, I met my now wife, Christine Champagne, and she um, is originally from Massachusetts, but lived as soon as she finished college, moved to New York. So she's been in New York for a long time. And um, she, you know, we had to have a long distance relationship for 
wait for it, 14 years. What? You've got to explain that in detail. <laughs> I don't even know. How does that make sense? I just, well, you would tell me. So The most extraordinary aspect of my life, I think. But um, yeah, no, because the she could have come to Canada. I could have sponsored her for immigration and she could have come to Canada at any point in our relationship. But she doesn't speak a word of French. Sorry, that's my dog, Omar. Hi, Omar. <laughs> Um, he's named after Omar Little from The Wire. Um, but anyways, um, so yeah, so she did not speak a word of French and Montreal, you know, she's a writer, um, and it wouldn't have been a really good idea for her career wise, um, to make that move. But for me coming to New York would have been a great career move. So it was a no brainer, um, from the beginning that I would be the one to move and that we could live together like a regular couple. But New York um, is in the United States and the Defense of Marriage Act, a.k.a. DOMA, um, was a law at the federal level that prevented um, the federal government from recognizing same-sex couples as married couples, no matter where they got married, no matter their, you know. Oh, I see. Yeah, so... Um, so that was a big impediment. So we had to patiently wait and hope. And um, I knew that DOMA would be repealed eventually. Christine wasn't quite as optimistic as I was, but I knew it would be repealed. And then it was in 2013, thankfully. And so we immediately set forth on, you know, getting married, getting a marriage license and going through the immigration process, which ended up taking a lot longer than it should have. Um because I finally got my green card in 2016, which, as you know, was the year um, Donald Trump was elected. And then immigration services slowed down to a snail's pace. Um, so it took a long time. I'm finally sworn in as a citizen, but that took a long time. It took a lot longer than it should have. But um, And even the process getting from 20. 13. In 2013, I was actually in London editing a series. Um, so we couldn't like, we, you know, we had to even postpone the marriage timing wise. The repeal of DOMA um, wasn't the most convenient time for us. So we didn't get married until 2014. Um, so there was just a bunch of roadblocks, but we got through it and now we live together and we've been living in the same apartment for four years and uh, now, thanks to um, the pandemic, we spend every day 24-7 in our apartment for the past yeah. four months. <laughs> <laughs> your wife is American. Yes. Yeah, so that's what took me. Oh, gosh, I forgot to answer your question. That's why I'm here. So um, because of love, not because of my career. But it was an amazing career move because... Yeah, I was super nervous about moving here, um, having only had editing experience in Canada, aside from the UK co-productions I worked on. Um, but, you know, I was like nervous. Are they going to look at my resume and be like, what the hell is this? I don't know what, you know, <laughs> I don't know any yeah. of these production companies and just like brush me off. But they didn't. And, you know, New York's an amazing place that way. Like, if you're a creative person and you come to New York City, it really is an incredibly uh, welcoming place, you know. Um, and, 
you know, I was, I was really grateful that, you know, it took a little time. It took maybe about four months before I got my first job, but, you know, and I worked really hard at it, sending out resumes every day and whatnot. So it did take a while, but not that long in the grand scheme of things. And then once I got one gig, you know, it sort of just got the ball rolling and one thing led to another. And so I've been very happy with the work I get to do here. It's different from what I was doing in Canada, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm loving everything I do. So it's great. And what were some of the first gigs you got once you moved to New York City? So my first job was um, at Part Two Pictures, um, a lovely production company in Brooklyn. And uh, the show, uh, it was on Showtime. The show is called Darknet. And it's sort of the, the documentary version of Black Mirror. Um, and the episode that I worked on um, was uh, the second season, episode six, called My Community. And basically about people who um, were the victims of online harassment to the point where they literally were ousted from their communities. Um, And it was shocking. Like there was, you know, one of the stories, um, there were two stories. Um, The story of uh, Larry Posner, who was the father of one of the children that were um, gunned down at the Sandy Hook massacre and how he tried to debunk the... um, you know the conspiracy, the conspiracy theorists who were saying that the it never happened, that it was a false flag operation, and he, you know, was so hurt by that that he single-handedly tried to debunk it online, which made him the victim of incessant harassment to the point where his family had to move um, away from Connecticut, and his location is indis- undisclosed. Um, and the other story was about a teacher who. Um, was a black woman living in a very conservative town in Arizona and whose students were harassing her like continuously. It was just horrific. And, you know, she was being photographed and mocked on Twitter and, um, and it was incessant. And she ended up being fired, losing everything. Uh, this, the school sued her. Um, she lost her home. She lost her job like it was just catastrophic the effects that it had on her and you know that woman actually reached out to me on twitter because i had tweeted a link to the show when it aired and um she was overcome with you know the storytelling and she was very very happy about the way that we told her story and that she finally had a voice and was able to recount her entire side of the story um, and for people to see. So that was a huge like moment for me that see? someone thanks to social media was able to contact me directly. Cause you know, editors are really behind the scenes, way yes. behind the scenes. <laughs> yes. Uh, unsung heroes in so many ways. They could save and make a, a breaker production. So for a lay person who has nothing to do with the film industry to recognize the fact that, you know, I was I had a hand in her telling her story was like tremendous. And being a part of these brilliant stories that you have done, what led you being the editor for The Last Defense? And what was it like working for Viola Davis? Wow. Um, so what led me to that? Oh uh, gosh, I can't remember. I think it was a friend of a friend. It was through the grapevine. Someone said, um, 
Oh yeah, that's it. Um, I someone I worked with at Part Two Pictures, in fact, who was doing. Um, she directed a an episode about the alt right, and um, she sent me an email out of the blue one day and said, "Hey, I'm a story producer on this new show um, that ABC is doing, um, and they want to do true like documentary. It's not like sort of a Dateline." or uh, 2020. It's like a real criminal justice documentary series. And she said, would you, you know, what's your availability and would you be interested? And I was like, well, hell yeah, I'd be interested. Um, So I sent them my resume and went to the interview and, and was really excited to get that job. Like it, I think it was one of the most exciting (laughs) job, you know, like when you get the news, I think I was one, you know, cause I was like, Oh my gosh, like Viola Davis is the executive producer and like little old me from Canada is going <laughs> to be working on this show. Like, <laughs> so I was really excited and starstruck. And, um, but that job I have to say was emotionally so intense. Like, um, you know, uh, Julius's story, uh, I worked on the Julius Jones story and Julius's story was so heartbreaking. And I literally cried at least once or twice a week. Oh, gosh. Why? 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 Why did that happen? Well, it, okay. So we, Julius is on death row uh, in an Oklahoma prison um, for a crime he did not commit. Um, I'm super confident about that, having seen everything. Um, he never got a fair defense at all. Uh, so even based on just the defense that he got at trial, he should get a new trial. I mean, it's abominable. So, um, the footage, uh, you know, the, the, the footage contained scenes with his family, interviews with his father and mother and the toll that it has taken on their lives to have their son, uh, be on death row for 20 years is just heart-wrenching. It, it literally rips your heart out of your chest. Like, you know, many times they would, you know, tear up and get emotional. And, I mean, to see that and not react, I, I think, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's a human reaction. And also, Julius... Um, technically by law is allowed to be filmed for uh, a documentary, but the Oklahoma penitentiary where he is just denied, repeatedly denied our requests to go in and interview him. So he, um, everything was done by phone. So all of the, um, you know, Julius's voice is just his voice. So we had just audio. Um, But I had, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours of phone calls between him and Gemma Jordan, the story producer who did an incredible job and who, you know, really forged a relationship with Julius. Like they, you know, they talked on the phone like a couple of times a week for a year. So, um, you know, and sometimes he would call her, um, and, uh, you know, she'd be sit- sitting in the edit suite. So I would get to speak to Julius a little bit. And every time we got off the phone, I would feel so emotional just because I he was just so filled with gratitude, 
you know, and, and just hearing him speak, like, made it so, like, speaking directly to him, which is another thing that editors don't always get to do, um, it just made the story so, so human and so, like, personal, you know, and it was, it was very emotional. And I think that some of the scenes, like, um, that make me cry when I watch the show, um, even though I... (laughs) You know, some of them were cut by by me, some of them by uh, Kareem, an an incredibly talented um, editor, Kareem Lopez, who uh, edited the first episode of the Julius Jones story. Um, You know, I think that those episodes were edited by someone who was also crying as they edited them. So I think that the emotion you pour into something, you know, comes back out when when viewers watch it. And I think that's like, I think it's important to really feel um, the feelings when you're, when you're editing, you know, that's amazing. Um, It's a great point you made there. And I'm guessing in the documentary that I watched this morning that we spoke about briefly before your heart was in it exactly the same way. That was a very, very moving story. What a guy. I mean, the, the type of soul and spirit and fundamental belief he had in himself and still does have in himself is amazing. I mean, tell us about that. How did you get involved? And what was what was the process like, like for you as an editor to edit something like that? Well, the uh, again, it was word of mouth, friend of a friend, a friend of mine in Montreal, Nabil Meshi, who's one of the greatest uh, friends in my life and a, a wonderful editor, like unbelievably talented guy. He wrote me a Facebook message and was like, hey, my friend is looking for an editor for her documentary. Um, You know, can I put you in touch? And I said, sure. And this had happened a couple of times um, before where someone's like, oh, a friend of mine's looking for an editor. And, you know, and I would look at their the trailer and I'd be like, no, this is really not for me. So I, I wasn't like I didn't have super high hopes. I was just like, you know, whatever, I'll look at it. But she, um, the filmmaker, Laurence Mathieu-Léger, who is also from Montreal, who happened to live around the corner from me, but I never knew her in Montreal, which is weird. Um, She edited um, herself. She edited a demo um, when she had shot, you know, when she had enough footage to do so and sent me that. And the second I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to work on this. I want to tell this man's story so bad. And even if she can't pay me, I'm going to make this work. Like, somehow I will do it. Um, but she did pay me. <laughs> she... <laughs> Even better. <laughs> yeah. She was like, no, no, no. It's funny because it was the first time ever in my life I went to a job interview. And then when we talked about salary, I was like, well, you could pay me, like, you know, this much. And she was like, you know, don't undersell yourself. Like, I'm going to pay you. Th-. And she gave me more than what I asked for. <laughs> because she was like yeah because she was very much like you know as women we need to assert you know we need to be more assertive when we're negotiating money because we have the tendency to be like look if you can't afford it like you know I'll take this you know but um okay yeah so um so yeah so that worked out and so when we met I think it was just instant um we clicked instantly you know and um and we're working together on a new film soon but um you know it was a wonderful working relationship and i count her as also one of my close friends closest friends in new york um laurence is she's incredibly 
generous and she's just a wonderful filmmaker to work with. And she is so passionate and energetic about her work. Like she will like jump to her feet and run and film something at the spur of the moment. And um, yeah, she's just really unbelievable. And she's like a one woman team. Like, you know, she goes out that all of Willie was filmed mostly by her. Wow. I was going to ask about that. That's amazing. I know, right? Because I wondered how many cameras, how much footage you'd have got back from different cameras. Um, But it it sounds like you got footage back from one camera most of the time. Most of the time. She, but she used two cameras, but by herself. She would go and set up her A-cam on a tripod and then she would you know, start the interview and use the B-cam herself to get close-ups of hands and faces during interviews. So everything was pretty much shot with two cameras, but most of the time it was her by herself. She also had another DP uh, sometimes, um, and uh, another kick-ass female cinematographer uh, named Ninon Pedneau. She's really wonderful. And um, so sometimes there were two cameras, but I would say like more than half the footage is Laurence by herself. So she sounds like uh, she embodies the the self-shooting spirit. Oh, yeah, she does. It's it's amazing. You know, it's I, she's su- super talented and she's actually really she's a you know, she's really proficient on Adobe Premiere as well. So we right. you know, I edited the film in record time, you know, because she was able to like put things together and like send them to me and like, you know, um, so that film was edited pretty quickly. Um, however, the first few months I was really by myself cause she was still shooting. So I was at totally by myself in the edit suite. And, um, you know, we had like a big story jam session where, um, you know, we wrote down every scene that we liked on, on cue cards and put them on a huge uh, bulletin board in the order that we thought they could, you know, they would work best in. And, you know, we each brought like different things to the table as well. Like, you know, because I had worked on um, the last defense and because I had worked on the dark net episode and worked on other things that uh, focused on, you know, the history, like in Oklahoma, as we now everyone knows about the Tulsa massacre, um, because of recent events, but, you know, at the time, like that was news to me, um, when I was working on the, um, last defense, I had never known about the Tulsa massacre. And I learned about that because, you know, the history of race in Oklahoma is extremely fraught with, um, you know, cruel injustices. And, um, and, um, so, you know, when she told me this story about we weren't sure whether we were going to put this in the film or not, she said, you know, Willie tried out for baseball when he was um, because he loved baseball and hockey and he wasn't sure which one. He was really great at both of them. And she's, you know, she told me the story. She's like, you know, we talked about it in the interview. Billy, uh, Willie tried out for baseball and um, he went down to a tryout in Georgia in the South and it was like 1956 and um, his parents were really scared for him to go. And right away it clicked in my mind. I was like, that is one year after Emmett Till was lynched in the South and he was a boy from the North. Yeah. And I said, you know what? Of course his parents were terrified, 
you know, because that's the kind of thing that spread through the black community all over North America. And I was like, we need, yeah, we need to include the story because, you know, it was Willie's first exposure to Jim Crow laws, you know, being, you know, having grown up in Fredericton, New Brunswick, he um, had never experienced segregation. Um, So, you know, he took a you know, he went all the way down to the South. He flew there, but then took a bus home. And, you know, when he got there, it was like right away, he saw the segregated bathrooms and he couldn't, he couldn't even stay in the same hotel as the other white players. You know, he, they, they, he, the the black players were in a separate hotel. Um, He was called the N word on the field. Like he, you know, it was, it was bad. And then when he didn't make the team and he thought to himself, he felt relief, actually. He was like, you know what? (laughs) I don't know that I want to be exposed to this. So, you know, he got on a bus to go home and he, he, you know, he says that along this like three day bus ride, the further North he got, the further closer to the front of the bus he got. So he just kept moving up, you know, because he had to start off in the back in the south. And so the further north he got, every time they'd get out, he would try to get a seat closer to the front so that when he got to Fredericton, he was in the front seat. And he got off the bus and he said, I think I'll stick to hockey, which is a huge thing to say, because as we know, hockey is not exactly the most diverse um, sport either. So you know, to, for him to have made that decision, um, based on his experience, it must've been pretty bad, but Willie being Willie, he doesn't go into, he's not the kind of person to go into gory details. And he very much comes from this generation where it's like, you know, his models, like keep your head down, keep your head in the game, work hard, work hard. And, you know, success is the best revenge. You know, like win, be good at what you do. And that's the best uh, way to show, you know, that's the best answer clap back you could have, you know. One of the things I, I found interesting as well regarding some of the things he said is how in Canada, you, he didn't have to sit at the back of the bus. The, the race issues were very different compared to America. Well, yes and no. Okay. <laughs> but if he had stayed in Canada couldn't he have played professionally there because I'm I mean I'm not an expert on Canadian hockey or even American hockey I just know I've seen it in Madison Square Garden and I loved it um but I don't know the ins and outs I mean was that a possibility for him to you mean to be a player on a Canadian team yes in in Canada well okay so the the NHL the National Hockey League like if you look at most American teams, I guarantee you, at least 40% of almost every team is Canadian players. Um, (laughs) So I always tease my uh, friend who's a New York Rangers fan, you know, when they win a game, they're like, woohoo, you know, New York, and I'm like, and Canada, because like half your players are (laughs) Canadian. (laughs) Good on you. Um, But yeah, um, there's a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of mixing, moving around. Um, and so when Willie started to play, he was part of the Montreal Canadiens farm team, which is like a team that farms out the players. 
And um, so you're, they're not in the team yet, but they're in the farm team. So they'll replace a, you know, they might replace a player who's out injured or, you know. So um, he was in the farm team for the Montreal Canadiens. And then at the time, there were only six teams in the NHL. This was in 1958. So, um, you know, there, there was not that many choices anyway. But the Boston Bruins um, called him up to play a couple of games and to see to try him out. And, you know, and they liked him and he got in. So and he was literally the first black player in the NHL. And that's how it happened. Just like that. And um, so, yeah. So and that was 10 years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball. You know, but unlike baseball, hockey didn't have like a steady stream of black players entering the game after Willie. You know, it was 16 years before the next black player. Jesus. 16 years. Wow. And it's there's still an infinitesimally small percentage of players. You know, and there are a lot of reasons for that. What are some of the reasons, do you think? I think that access is one. You know, obviously you need ice. Um, and... And the equipment's expensive. Um, not to say that... You know, not to say that economically, you know. Yeah. But I do think that it's just one of those sports that, like, um, it's so so synonymous with, like, northern cold countries. You know, like, Russia is big on hockey. And, um, (laughs) you know, so, like, yeah, exactly. It's such a Nordic thing. And I think that, um, you know, it's not like you can just... Like, if you live in Florida, you can't just, like, put on a pair of skates and go to the park and start playing hockey. But in Canada, you do that. Like, I spent my life skating in Canada, you know? So in the winter, I would put on, like, I would grab my skates, go to the park, put them on, and get on the ice. Like, that's what we did. So, um, you know, Canada has a smaller black population than the United States does. So there's just the sheer numbers aren't as, you know, they aren't as high. And, you know, and I do think it, 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 it all stems on inclusivity as well. And, you know, the ugly truth is you have to acknowledge that, you know, black players aren't treated so great by fans. Um, fans are overwhelmingly white. And to yeah. this day, I mean, as you saw in the film, it, what, what Willie experienced on the ice was the exact same thing Wayne Simmons experienced a couple of years ago, you yeah. know, or Devonte Smith Pelly. Like it's just, it still happens and it's outrageous, you know, and hopefully there's some sort of a sea change um, happening in people's attitudes, but it's just crazy that, you know, any player trying to, you know, play a sport that they love would be subjected to race-based taunts from fans. Like, that's unacceptable. And, you know, they have gotten stricter about kicking people out of the of the stands who do that. You know, when when, when, it, when it happened to Willie, oh, you know... Oh, it just happened, yeah. Yeah, it just happened. And then Willie was ejected from the game in Chicago. You know, he tells that 
story about how he got his teeth knocked out by a Chicago Blackhawk. And yeah. then, the you know, he was ejected from the game because it was too dangerous for him to stay. So, you know, that was in the late 50s. And then, you know, hopefully today when that happens, it's the pe- the people, you know, making the racial slurs that are ejected from the rink. And you mentioned earlier about you edited this very quickly. How quickly did you edit it and how fast was that compared to The Last Defense, for example? Well, first of all, we have to take into account the format. The Last Defense was, you know, 46 minutes. Yeah. yeah. And Willie was a feature documentary. And yet um, I started editing Willie in like, it was a, a September 2018, I guess. And then I finished in February. So October, November, December, December, like five months. That's, that's crazy for a documentary, like a feature documentary. Okay. How long would one normally take for you? Um, I mean, you know, normally it'd be like eight months, like double that time. Or, uh, yeah. Eight to 10 months. Some films are, you know, they take over yeah. a year or years. So that's a very fast turnaround, you know, but Laurence, it, it's literally how she functions. So, um, and it came together, you know, the film came together and we wanted it. We really wanted to submit it to hot docs. Um, and so we were sort of like racing to meet that deadline. It was like yes. a self-imposed deadline, but it was, you know, to get into hot docs and, um, and we got in, so <laughs> it was worth it. It certainly was. How, honestly, how do you feel about things like that? I was speaking to a different filmmaker about it. And when you finished editing the film and you saw the final production, did you think in yourself, this is going to get in hot dogs? They're mad not to take it. Do you have that kind of feeling within yourself? Yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to get a modest, oh, who, me? No, not at all. Or something like that. But good. You just came out of it straight away. Yeah, yeah. I just loved it. I was like, this is so good. Um, you know, and I, and I, we sent it to a couple of people, um, who I trusted, really, really trusted to give me an honest opinion, um, and some notes. Cause it was interesting for me. I normally work with, um, you know, a lot of what I do is, has a network attached, attached to it. You know, like right now I'm working on a series for FX, um, about the LGBTQ, rights movement in in america but um so we have a network you know and it's like they of course give notes <laughs> and um okay. and with willie it was like me and laurence like we had no we had no notes you know we had an executive producer um bryant mcbride who was the nhl's very first black executive Um, and he gave us good feedback in terms of like, oh, that's, you know, you're using the wrong shot. Like that's, you know, like technically he knew about hockey more much. I mean, being Canadian, I've watched it, but you know, there were times where I would, you know, I put something in and he'd be like, oh no, that's wrong. Like the announcer is saying this and that's not the right, you know, that's not the right play. So he was very uh, invaluable in terms of having that insight. Oh, that's good. 
yeah, we didn't really have anyone hovering over us giving us like, you know, story notes or anything like that. So we really had to just rely on ourselves. And then I said, well, we can't, we can't do that. Even though I felt pretty confident about it, you know, I thought we should send this out to some people. And one of them was a documentary filmmaker who I knew. Um, and, you know, I sent him the film and he, he did give us some really great little notes and we took them and, but he liked it. So I knew, I, I knew he would tell me if there was, yeah. <laughs> you know, so that made me feel better. And so I thought, well, it's got to get into hot dogs. I mean, you know, it, it's it's hockey first of all it's a canadian <laughs> film festival come on you yeah. know but um i mean it's not totally a sports documentary either no no it's a, it's a story of like triumph and an intense little fortitude and, and and much more rather than just hockey and another thing I, I should have picked up on before when you said about um she's a self self-shooter primarily the director grabbing the audio in the car do you know what type of process she went through to do that because the audio is really good in the car oh um he's just wearing a lav okay yeah she just put clips uh the microphone on him and um yeah and good to go okay yeah wow. so yeah the audio is actually good in the car i gotta hand it to her she really I mean, I was worried, you know, when she said that she shoots by herself, I was like, oh, my God, you don't have a sound person like yeah. that's that's, you know, bananas. But it actually worked out fine. Like the sound is good. And so I was happy about that. It also, you know, you can see that everyone she films like his friends in New Brunswick, the film yeah. to me is as much about friendship as it is anything else. Like when I was watching the rushes for the first time and I was like, here's this 83 year old man and his friends are all in their seventies and eighties. And look at them. They're like this group of besties that are just like any yes. old group of that. Like I was like, that is a life goal. You know, like I want to, I want to be just as like, you know, active with my friends when I'm in my eighties, you know, as, as this point. group, like, it's just such a, beautiful thing to see and the fact that they you know the campaign to get him recognized by the hall of fame was such a grassroots effort you know like his friend brenda um you can't have cast a better brenda you know she spearheaded the you know the campaign like she was the one she was the organizer you know she got all the yeah the letters together and the paperwork and the p photos and into this big application. It's like a 61 page application. And, um, you know, she, you could not have cast a better Brenda. Like she, she's one of my absolute favorite people in the world. She was brilliant. Oh, she is brilliant. And I was so happy I got to meet her because another wonderful thing about Laurence is that she, she was like, you have to come to the hall of fame induction ceremony. And I was like, what? And she, you know, she was like, yes, you have to come. So I, I, you know, and I got to bring Christine, my wife, with me. And we went to Toronto for the um, the induction ceremony. And it was a whirlwind weekend. I mean, we saw the Maple, Maple Leafs play from a VIP lodge. And we, you know, uh, it was, like, amazing. We got to meet all these hockey players and, like, 
um, and meet all the characters in the film that you've been seeing on screen for how for how long yeah and it was just wonderful and and sweet brenda um this is so brenda when i met her like a few minutes later she came up to my wife and i and she was like you know i just wanted you to know that i ran for mayor in fredericton and um in the 80s and part of my platform was lgbtq rights and um that was you know long before it was trendy and i i didn't win but i just wanted you to know that (laughs) she's special she's a good one that's for sure she is she is and so's junior his bestie yes they're just adorable together like it's just I mean, they're so happy to see. I'm like, you know, you've been friends for 70 years and you're still super excited to see each other this way. It's just. In terms of your wife's involvement in, in film and television, tell us about George in My Backpack and how the both of you are going to make this documentary. Oh, it's actually not a documentary. It's oh. it's narrative. Yeah, it's a short oh, wow. film. Yes. Yeah, so um, it's based on my wife's true experience it's a true story um and so we so of course the pandemics put put a big damper on our shooting schedule because it would have been shot by now yeah but um we she wrote an essay about george years ago and uh he was her neighbor and he uh he died and he you know he he was very ill and knew he was dying and christine pretty much became his only sort of friend you know he was a very like isolated man and he had lost his husband um years before and so he like lived alone and you know he was a very like stoic isolated kind of person and uh, a little bit grumpy but um you know, Christine befriended him and Christine's just super warm and friendly. And, you know, as soon as people meet her, they like her. She's funny and charismatic. Yeah. So, um, and they were like, you know, their door, their front doors were, you know, just a couple of feet away from each other in a typical New York tenement building. So, um, which we still live in the apartment, um, uh, the same apartment that, that this story took place in. And um, so she befriended George and he um, confided in her. And when he did die, he, you know, he had expressed very many times that he wanted to be cremated. And um, she, when he died, there was no one to claim his body. Like his parents had long died. He had no siblings, no relatives. So there was no one to claim his body. So Christine paid for his cremation. And as a result, um, you know, is entitled to his remains. So (laughs) the film sort of tells that story, how she has to go and get George from the funeral home. And, you know, and I don't want to say too much because (laughs) we, you know, we we, we haven't, uh, you know, we haven't like shot it yet. So, um, we, the script is written, the script is written and we wrote it together. And that was really amazing because we, and we've been together for 18 years and it's the first time we wrote something together and it went so well, we were so happy about that. Like we, the process was, we agreed on everything and it was just like, 
you know, it's based on her experience with George and, you know, to tell it in a narrative way in a short film, um, because we figured the first thing we do together shouldn't be a feature. Uh, Let's start small. Um, Yes. Yeah. So it was just really great. And we 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 got some really good feedback on that as well. We uh, sent it away to Heather Matarazzo, who was like in one of the greatest, one of my favorite independent films um, of all time, Welcome to the Dollhouse. She's um, uh, Dawn Wiener, the main character, and she actually works as a script consultant now. And um, so we got some great notes from her. And then we now have this like film that we really love and we want to shoot. And, you know, we have to wait until it's safe. So will you be producing the film as well? Will you be casting the actors? Have you got any idea who's going to be doing sound? I mean, is this a chance for you to to not edit something but still be involved in it? Or will you be editing it as well as co-writing? Oh, yes, of course, I'll be editing it. Yeah, I, I definitely. Um, we're going to co-direct. And I think that Christine will be more... The directing duties will be divided in terms of she'll direct the actors a lot more and I will direct. Actually, Laurence is going to shoot it. Um, She's our DP. And she, because she is extraordinarily talented in her composition. Like, just, I mean, as you saw in Willie, it's so photographic, you know, it's beautifully shot. So she's actually our DP. And we do have a main um, actor uh, playing the main character, Charlotte, um, who's a dear friend of ours. Her name is Janice Morgan, and she's extremely talented and is perfect. So we have a main character cast, and we need two more actors. Um, we have some ideas. We're not, you know, it's not set in stone now because we, as I said, we would have shot the film a few months ago, um, but, you know, we couldn't. Uh, so it was supposed to be shot in May and unfortunately that didn't happen. Um, so, uh, we, we, we do not have a sound person, but you know, it's what, what I love about New York. One of the things that I love about New York is that New Yorkers really have this sense of community, um, in the film business. So like I could call upon, and you know, I've actually, I edited, I edited a short film for a friend of mine you know, a few months back, we finished it, um, you know, and so she will probably come on board as our producer, um, you know, the sound, the person who did sound on her film will probably come and transfer to our team as well. So, you know, it's like, yeah, we have this like collective, so to speak, you know, this informal collective of people that we like to work with and that make shorts and, you know, it's just so much fun um and so i really really look forward to being able to do it finally but hey it's been so great speaking to you i really appreciate you coming on the podcast and telling us about some of the great work you've done and i completely look forward to seeing more from you i I can't wait i'm actually going to check out some more of your vimeo page oh thank you damien that's so sweet no not a problem not at all and and we'll speak soon Yes, we'll speak soon. It was a great, like, great fun talking to you.